Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we have the privilege of having back with us a second time, Kevin D. Williamson. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. I, I'm thrilled. I have one of my favorite writers on, so... Yes, absolutely. And uh, we, we joked about this as we were, were getting ready for the show here. But uh, last time we had Kevin on, it was four days after January 6th of 2021. Uh, and yeah, and and we we now have him on. And there's probably no one else I'd want to talk to more than about the, the situation in Russia and, and Ukraine. Kevin D. Williamson is a fellow at the National Review Institute and the roving correspondent for National Review. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Kevin. Thanks so much. Well, let's 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 dig in. Um, what's your overall assessment of this? It, I call it insanity happening in in Ukraine. You know the um, Reagan extract that you um, bring in at the at the beginning of the show is a reminder of how uh, far sighted he was in many ways, talking about the emergence of the knowledge economy way back uh, before there was such a thing. One of the other things he was really far sighted about was the need for nuclear disarmament. Uh, people forget what a peacenik Reagan was. And um, to the point of um, doing things that would not fly in modern politics, a lot of people don't remember this, but you know his plan for um, missile defense was to develop this impermeable missile defense system and then share it with the Soviets to give them the technology to essentially make you know intercontinental ballistic missiles pointless. Um, Right now, I think a lot of us are wishing in the direst way that he had succeeded in uh, doing that because Russia is not a great power. Um, Russia is a sort of has-been country. Its economy is roughly the size of Florida's. Um, its number one thing is oil and gas, but we produce a lot more oil than they do. Uh, the world doesn't have any particular need for it, but the world has to give Vladimir Putin some deference and take him seriously simply because of the nuclear weapons. I think that whatever ends up shaking out in Ukraine, um, the lesson that we Americans should draw from this, uh, from our own sort of narrow, selfish, strategic point of view, is that we should really take nuclear uh, proliferation very seriously and re-embrace uh, nuclear disarmament as a, uh, as a big national security priority uh, for us, not just because of the moral monstrosity, but also because it constrains us in practical ways that it's probably not good to have the United States constrained. Um, you know, it's been fun watching and listening to some of these Brooking Institute types suddenly rediscover um, the uses and necessity of uh, American power. And the alternative to a um, you know, sort of US hegemony in a US dominated world order right now is one dominated by China or some partnership of China and Russia. And I think that if anything, this Russia episode has really 
forced us to confront that in a much more direct way. In some ways, we're lucky. The Ukrainians aren't lucky. They're getting bombed and killed and murdered. But we're kind of lucky in this episode in that it's a little bit of a trial run for us. You know, this is what a confrontation with one of the major illiberal nuclear powers looks like. It's also sort of beneficial to the Chinese, I would imagine, because they're getting a kind of dry run of what our response is going to be. Um, They know now what our sanctions will look like, how they'll be structured, who will play, who won't play, um, that they'll be much more um, far-reaching than most people have probably imagined, that private actors in the business community will go further than what they're legally required to do. Um, So it's been in some ways good for us. It's been in some ways very good uh, for the Chinese. It's going to be a very, very bad outcome, I think, for Vladimir Putin um, because he's losing. And, um, you know, the the political goal of this invasion has already been lost. You know, it's supposed to be just a show of force and strength. We're invincible. We can walk in here and uh, you know, decapitate this regime and install one that we like. And even if they end up winning the war, uh, air quotes around that, they're not going to get what they had wanted out of it. They've already lost that. And um, rather than having a display of strength and competence, they've had a real display of incompetence. You know, Ukraine's the country next door. They're not fighting a world away like they were in, you know, you need Afghanistan. Uh, and they're not very good with transportation. They're not very good with the logistics. Uh, whether they had four generals killed over there already. And you've got Putin going around, you know, arresting uh, advisors and staffers and, uh, you know, intelligence directors and things like that, which is always, you know, a bad sign when the, the tyrant starts looking for people to blame. He starts to figure out that he's lost. As someone was pointing out earlier when this when this first really started happening, um, Russian strongmen don't tend to survive these things. Um, you know, when they when they lose a confrontation abroad, they tend to get driven out of power. And I think Putin has probably signed his own death warrant, whether he knows it or not. Um, there's no retirement program for guys like this. You know, there are some dictators who can take their hundred billion dollars or whatever he's got squirreled away and. You know, you move to Dubai, you hang out with Juan Carlos, you know, it's a good time. Uh, But Putin can't really do that. You know, he's the kind of gangster who's hurt a lot of people on his way up. And as soon as he's a little bit weakened, uh, you know, he's done for. Yeah, I I agree. I I think there's no way he gets out of out of this alive. And as you put it in your column with regard to to China, uh, and I think that continued today with his call with with uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, Z's moving sideways (laughs) on this pretty quickly. Well, you know, it's not good for their prestige. Um, Also, it's not good just for them right now. They've got some economic problems right now, some pretty serious ones. Um, You know, something like 20% of their housing stock is uninhabited uh, because they just went through this, you know, Dutch tulip mania style building boom. And they've got a lot of indebted companies. You know, growth has slowed down a lot. As I put it in my Sunday column, you know, if we have a really, really bad recession in the United States, then Joe Biden has to go back to Delaware. If they have a really, really bad recession in China, you know, it's a guillotine. Um, it's these guys don't don't make it out of that. Xi Jinping knows how his party got in power. Um, he's read the books and he's been around long enough to uh, to know how this works. And, you know, Xi and, and Putin are alike in a sense in that their their legitimacy, if you want to call it that, is based on a false promise that if you 
give up your natural human freedoms and allow us to run things in our autocratic style, then you'll at least get material prosperity out of it. Um, you'll get physical security, you'll get a stable society, and you'll get um, a source of nationalistic pride. And, um, you know, Russia is just throwing all those things away right now. And China doesn't want to associate itself with that. And uh, they, they've also got a much you know, larger, more diversified economy than Russia does. So they're much more, um, by necessity, much more sensible about some practical things. Um, you know, Russia's pretty much just got oil and gas to sell. Um, China's got a much more diverse economy. So do you think that this lessens the the chance that uh, China will, will make a move on Taiwan? Honestly, I can't for the life of me figure out why they haven't done it already. Um, they could have done it during the Trump administration and they would have got some tweets and maybe six months worth of tariffs or something, but there wouldn't have been any serious response. I don't think the Biden administration would do much more than that. Um, there will be, you know, UN denunciations and that sort of thing. Um, at least I don't see why they hadn't done it up until now. Now, with the example that's been set with the, you know, the breadth and the urgency of the economic sanctions in response to the Ukraine invasion, that might be giving them some, some second thoughts. But um, it's really very difficult to, you know, say what they're thinking. Sure. Um, and the Ukraine situation is is really quite different from the the Taiwan situation, in that um, let me preface this by saying you know I'm I'm very pro Taiwan. If I had it my way, they'd be an independent country, and the you know Chinese Communist Party would not exist. But at least as a matter of history and rhetoric, the United States is a uh, you know is on board with what's known as the One China policy. This idea that there is essentially one Chinese people, one Chinese nation. And the People's Republic in China and Taiwan are both part of it. Um, that is a lot more, I think, of a at least rhetorical and political fig leaf for a you know forcible uh, reunification than anything you know Putin could uh, cook up about uh, the situation in Ukraine. It's not to say I think that sort of thing would be legitimate, but I think that the Chinese would have an easier time making an argument for its legitimacy that some parties, not the United States, but some others would um, find more persuasive. Yeah, of course, of course, a, a, an invasion overseas is, is a lot, lot more difficult than one that's going through land as well. So that's probably factored into it as well. Yeah, I, um, I wonder whether they would really even have to fight um, you know, China is just so much larger, has so much more uh, capacity to you know, impose its, its will than Taiwan has to defend itself. I mean, Taiwan's a very you know, plucky country with some very brave people. But um, and again, I'm no, no military expert, but I have difficulty believing that Taiwan would be able to put up much of a defense against the People's Republic of China um, just simply because of you know, scale and mass. Um, so it might be at some point the Beijing just kind of plants a flag and says, this is where we are now and um, moves forward from there. Turning back to, to Russia, what are, what are your thoughts on the companies that are staying and going? It, um, you know, McDonald's is, is closed, uh, cl closing these locations down, but Burger King is remaining open. Is there any thoughts on that? 
Well, you know, I, I should get Charlie Cook in here because he's a former McDonald's employee, but I'm a former Burger King employee. So we've got our partisan differences there. Um, I don't know what their, you know, internal uh, calculations look like. Uh, McDonald's is a company like Coca-Cola and Nike and other firms like that that really lives by its public image in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's in some ways, it's amazing that Coca-Cola spends so much money on advertising in a world in which there's probably not, there's probably not 10 million people in this planet of billions who don't know what Coke is. Um, you know, it's got to be the most universally recognized brand in the world, you know, Coke and McDonald's probably. Um, but they care a great deal about how people feel about them. And because uh, obviously you're not going there because the food's great, because it's not <laughs> terrible. But uh, so... It may be that, you know, because um, I know in the United States, for instance, McDonald's doesn't actually operate very many restaurants. They're almost all owned by franchisees. Mm. So if that's the case in Russia, which I don't know off the top of my head whether it is or not, it might be easier for them to just sort of close up shop that way because they're not really imposing losses on themselves. They're imposing losses on on someone else. Um, but no, I am. Um, I admire these companies for uh, for taking a stand. You know, there, there are times to do this and. Um, this is one of them. I think that we live in a in a in a period in which people are far too eager to organize boycotts and you know sort of ritual public denunciations and things like that over you know relatively minor and petty political disagreements and domestic cultural things and all that. But this is this is this is a more serious thing. I think that that warrants that kind of response. So um, and in the long term, it's probably not going to cost them that much anyway. You know, if you look at uh, the footprint revenue-wise of a firm like uh, McDonald's, there's not too much that's that's attached to any one country, except for maybe the United States, China, and maybe Germany. You know, some very very large countries. Um, I can't imagine that Russia is uh, is a huge piece of their business. Although it's interesting symbolically, because I remember, you know, when the first McDonald's opened on Pushkin Square. And that was, you know, the, really the sign that the Cold War was over and uh, that Russia was going to be coming along and sort of joining the normal world, um, which they didn't quite manage to do. And I think that was partly a failure of ours, too. To, we didn't provide them with enough assistance, I think, and maybe enough pressure at the end of the Cold War to um, help them become the kind of country that they should be, that the Russians could really be proud of. Well, this is great. We're already against our first break. want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our sponsor of the day is Blake Oliver at Earmark CPE. He is, uh, it can be found at earmarkcpe.com. And he is a sponsor of our Patreon channel, which you can find at patreon.com slash TSOE. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My Fraud. Fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Kevin Williamson, National Review's roving correspondent. And Kevin, your colleague Robert, is it Zubrin, wrote an article where he laid out three different ending scenarios Putin wins NATO accepts it drops the sanctions Putin wins NATO doesn't accept it and either increases the sanctions or just keeps them on and brings Russia to ruin or the Ukraine wins which would be the best outcome and I was just wanting to get your take on that and on any of those scenarios I'm not asking you to predict but Mm -hmm. what, what would happen next in any of those scenarios. I mean, give me the second order and tertiary effects. Yeah, what I've actually advocated is is a different one, which is that um, Ukraine essentially prevails in the sense that they keep the Russians from achieving their objectives there, although they can inflict a lot of damage. And then I think we should keep the sanctions in place. Um, everyone talks about giving Putin an off-ramp in the great, you know, cliche. If I had a dollar for every time someone said off-ramp on radio or television the last month, I would have eh, $56. But um, I think we should be blocking his off-ramps. Um, I think it's very rare that a country like this makes this big of a mistake and gives you such a large opportunity. Um, I don't want to make things unnecessarily hard on the Ukrainians, obviously, and encourage the Russians to be worse than they are. Um, But if they start getting ready to pull out and looking for a retreat, um, I mean, I don't think we should physically block them, um, but I don't think we should cooperate at all. I think that we should, um, if anything, wind up the sanctions and tighten them, uh, make them broader and deeper. Uh, You know, every Russian politician, every Russian firm, every Russian financial institution, every transaction and um, and squeeze some real concessions out of them. Um, if not, you know, collapse the economy and cause sort of backdoor regime change, then, uh, you know, put them on the road to accepting a more, um, 
responsible and decent role in the world, um, beginning with uh, reduction in their their nuclear stockpile. Like you say, let's see how Russian nationalism fares on a Pakistani income. Yeah, (laughs) people don't understand how poor Russia is. So their GDP per capita is about $11,000. That is not a lot of money. So they are much, much poorer than countries that we don't think of as being especially rich, like, you know, Panama or Barbados, places like that. Their GDP per capita is about half of Lithuania's. So they're not not a very wealthy uh, country at all. And their incomes really are, you know, dropping uh, precipitously. I wish I had the number off the top of my head, but some shocking percentage of household income in Russia comes from government spending in the form of government salaries and pensions and things like that. I want to say it's 60% or something. Mm, yeah, it's, a, sure. it's an outrageous number. And uh, that government doesn't have any money to spend anymore. And it's going to be a while, uh, I think, before they do. And um, so, yeah, I think we should really press our advantage on this. You know, Putin is a very bad actor in the world stage. He's very dangerous. Um, if anyone is inclined to actually use a nuclear weapon in the world right now, it's probably him. Uh, I don't think the Chinese would do it. They're pretty risk averse. Um, I think even, you know, the North Koreans are not um, foolish enough to uh, do it. But, you know, Putin very well may be. So um, I would like to see us continue just to um, try to persuade our allies to keep up um, very, very heavy and severe economic pressure on Russia, irrespective of what happens after they give up in Ukraine, which is what I think they eventually will will do. Now, the Ukrainians are going to have different ideas about this, of course. Um, and this is where our our interests aren't exactly aligned. I mean, for us, from a purely, you know, sort of Machiavellian point of view, um, the longer the Russians expend themselves in Ukraine, the better, right? Every soldier that's dead in Ukraine is not a soldier they can send somewhere else. Every dollar they spend on this fruitless campaign there is um, not a dollar they can spend somewhere else or ruble. And um, also, we don't want to reward Putin with territory or concessions or, you know, essentially a veto power over NATO uh, membership for what he's done. Um, But the Ukrainians are going to want to accept something at some point because it's it's hard having bombs dropped on you all day and it's their homes and their people uh, getting killed. So obviously, we have to um, let them take the lead there in terms of their own policy. But we we have the ability and and the duty, I think, to um, follow an independent path of our own in addition to trying to do what's right and best for them. I like what you said a couple of days in your, I think it was called walking on atomic eggshells column where you said, you know, the off ramp, everybody's talking about the off ramp for Putin, but nobody asks what's the USA's off ramp. And I just, I got to ask you this because, and this is totally emotional, not logical. Have you been frustrated like I have about, and it may be just a media narrative, like everybody's worried about Putin's reaction. Is he going to launch a tactical new? I want him to be worried about our reaction. Yeah, in a sane world, that's how things work, right? I mean, the United States is by far the most powerful player um, on the world stage. Um, Biggest economy, biggest oil producer, uh, most diverse and dynamic economy, biggest military all that stuff. So, yeah, um, it really should be the United States that makes the threats, that sets the uh, terms and tempo 
and that people worry about the United States escalating or not escalating. Now, one reason that is not the case is, as alluded to earlier, the fact that Putin has nuclear weapons, which is really the only thing that really keeps us constrained in a very practical way, not just us, but the European Union and, and other uh, countries in the world have to take that into consideration. And in some ways, we have to doubly take it into consideration because if Putin does use a nuclear weapon, it's not likely that he will use it against the United States, at least not the continental United States. It's likely he will use some tactical uh, weapon um, that will be much more of an issue for, well, first of all, the Ukrainians, but also Poland, Lithuania, uh, nearby countries that have to uh, worry about having, you know, actual nuclear exchanges going on in their uh, their neighborhood. But um, I would like to see the United States act a little more like a superpower. You know, I mean, there's at some point you want to say, what's the point of having all this if you don't occasionally do something with it? And uh, especially when history hands you the really rare opportunity to do something that is the right thing to do and is also in your interest. Usually you're choosing one or the other. You know, here's something that's really in our interest, but it's a little bit sneaky and underhanded or it's a little bit um, amoral in some way, which is which is how the world works. Or here's this crusade we want to go on that's a really righteous thing to do, but doesn't really redound to our benefit in any way. Uh, in this case, we get to, you know, do both of those things at the same time. So I would like to see us uh, pursue that. I think Joe Biden is um, very risk averse and maybe a little bit lazy. And I think that the rest of his administration kind of is too. Um, you know, the president's character does tend to imprint itself on the on the mood and habits of the overall administration. So, I mean, he's got, you know, a few good people who, who work for him. I'm not, you know, one of these crazy partisans who thinks there's no such thing as a, uh, as a good Democrat, but um, they really do seem to be one of keeping this at, uh, at arm's length. And of course they're worried that we're on the edge of another uh, recession. Um, or a recession coincident with very, very high levels of inflation. And Biden, who first entered public office the year I was born, and I'm not a young man, is old enough to remember what happened to Jimmy Carter and, um, and not to want to repeat that. Kevin, when President Zelensky addressed Congress, he basically said that, you know, the predecessors created institutions that should protect us from war, but unfortunately they don't work. Jim Garrity called the UN an impotent debating society that fails to pay its parking tickets. And yeah. Gary Kasparov called it a catwalk for dictators. You know, people criticize NATO, but I'll tell you, I'll take NATO over the UN any day. Well, I think they do different things, and I'm glad they're both there. Uh, the UN doesn't really do much in terms of effective intervention or policy creation in the world, but it does provide a forum for world leaders to talk to one another. And I think that's important. Uh, people complain about the UN being a debating society, as they call it. Well, I'm glad it's a debating society. Actually, having a debating society is, uh, is a useful thing. Having NATO is a useful thing, too. And um, yeah, someone who kind of grew up in the Cold War and you know, came of age in the 80s talking about NATO and Russians and, and the German defense budget and all that sort of stuff feels a, a little retro. But um, these things are uh, relevant still, nonetheless. What's been your position on providing weapons? Like, should we provide F-16s to the Ukraine? And what, of course, about the no-fly zone? Yeah, I mean, the no-fly zone, uh, the usual criticisms of that, I think, are right in the sense that you're essentially 
entering into combat when you do that, which I think is a pretty serious decision. We probably want Congress to declare war or, um, you know, do something along those lines. In terms of equipment and money and support and stuff, the nice thing about being a rich country is that if you have problems that can be solved by spending money, then that's the kind of problem you want to have. Uh, so I think we should be providing with every kind of, you know, material or equipment they, they ask for short of, you know, nuclear warheads and ICBMs and that sort of thing. Yeah, if they want guns and tanks and airplanes and uh, anti-aircraft systems and all that, sure, put them on boats and get them there. Awesome. Well, Kevin, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming back and doing this with us. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to ask TSOE at Verisage.com. Check out our Patreon channel, which is patreon.com slash TSOE. And that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds are better than one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it this is the voice america influencers channel be inspired are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are back with kevin d williamson the with the national review and also the national review institute and uh, we're going to turn our attention. Actually, you know what, Kevin? Uh, one more question on on Ukraine, and, and this is more on the words on words part, portion of your mm-hmm. of your column. Um, the Ukraine, when I was growing up, no longer the Ukraine, just Ukraine. Uh, curious as your thoughts on the definite article <laughs> in in use of, of, of country names. The Philippines makes sense because it's, it's a chain of islands. <laughs> yeah. So my understanding is that uh, Ukrainians object to this. Um, so Ukraine means edge, I believe. And so it's sort of, well, edge of what? Um, you know, edge of, you know, the sort of greater <laughs> Russian uh, footprint. So I think that um, Ukrainians, my understanding of the of the, the linguistic tick there is that they um, don't want to be thought um, of the edge as anything. They're the center of their own thing. 
So, you know, Ukraine will be the name of their country and it still means what it means, but it's not going to be, I suppose, grammatically presented in, in such a way as to uh, reinforce that suggestion. Yeah, there's just just a curious curiosity there about the definite article. Well, I've got a whole thing about, names. you know, place names. And because, uh, uh-huh. well, you know, I used to live in India and um, India has three names of its own. And um, for years has been, you know, renaming cities and places in cities. Sometimes usually it's just going back to whatever the local, you know, traditional word for it is, although sometimes it's. It's um, other things, but I remember when I first arrived in what was still called Bombay at that time, which everyone's now expected to call uh, Mumbai, which is not Hindi, by the way, it's uh, Marathi. Um, I used whatever the official name for the train station is there. I can't remember what it is, It's um, but it's named after uh, you know some famous local political leader. And I asked the taxi driver to take me there and he looked at me just you know, sideways and I tried it again, I figured I was pronouncing it wrong. And then eventually I just said, Victoria Terminus. Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's um, the, the renaming of places is an interesting uh, phenomenon, I think. And it's weird which ones we choose to, um, to to do and not do. So, I mean, we all say Kiev instead of Kiev these days because Kiev's the Russian pronunciation and, and Kiev's the Ukrainian pronunciation. But, you know, chicken Kiev is still chicken Kiev, including if you live in Kiev. Uh, that's how they say it there. Sort of like Yangon for Rangoon, but if you order crepes Rangoon in Yangon, you still say crepes Rangoon, not crepes Yangon. Not that I've ever actually done that, but um, I assume there's a restaurant somewhere where that's possible. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, uh, you are going to be traveling about with uh, the National Review Institute uh, on their Creating Opportunity Regional Seminars uh, in Dallas on March 30th and in Houston on March 31st. And you're going to be speaking with uh, Pano uh, Canelnos and Scott Turner on the foundation of opportunity. Talk a little to us about that, what you're going to be speaking there with there. Yeah, I think this one's going to be an interesting conversation. You know, um, one of my longstanding things, not exactly a complaint, but an observation that I think is worth keeping in mind, is that the conversation about public policy in the United States tend to be, tends to be dominated by a relatively small class of people. Um, you know, people who are college graduates, um, who are relatively affluent, uh, typically who, you know, come from families uh, where their parents are also college graduates. Um, so the people who dominate that conversation sort of all went to the same schools. They all belong to the same clubs. They all know the same people. They all watch the same television shows. Um, so it, it's really very culturally homogenous. And as a result, um, like any other class of people, they have a hard time talking about anything except themselves. It's like, you know, the media loves media stories. Um, and no one in the world cares who Tucker Carlson is except for Jon Stewart. And uh, it's just one of those things. But Jon Stewart cares a lot about it because you know, it's a media on media thing. So as a result of this, you know, we tend to look at places like um, well, South Dallas, which is gonna come up in this conversation, which is, you know, very poor, um, largely African-American area. And the conversation from all these, you know, sort of well-off college graduates is, well, how do we get more of the people from this neighborhood to go to college and have the sort of life that I have? Because wouldn't they be happier that way? And to an extent, that's true, um, but it's not really necessarily the path that's that's right for everyone. Um, You know, going to law school or going to college and working for a software company or going to work on Wall Street or something like that or going to work in the think tank or being a journalist is something that, you know, a very, very small share of the population does. Um, These just aren't, you know, super common things. But all of our conversations 
tend to be oriented toward getting more people to go to college, which I don't think is always the uh, the right choice. So we'll be we'll be talking some about that. Um, we'll be talking some about um, some things that are I think are important to understand in terms of education, both at the higher education level and also at the K through 12 level, which is that there's a real difference between you know liberal education, liberal arts education, and job training, and in a lot of ways, I don't think it makes sense to do both of these things at the same institutions to ask, you know, the University of Texas or Texas A&M or the University or Ohio State or something to be sort of all things to all people. There are different sorts of needs that have to be met in this marketplace, but I don't think we have enough of a variety of institutions and enough specialization really going on there to make that happen. There are some cultural things at work, too, I think, where... Um, we really do tend to sort of look down on people who have jobs that don't require a college education, um, including, you know, very high paying jobs sometimes, um, which is really weird. You know, you think about it, there are these guys who, you know, got a degree in communication from some third tier school and they work on spreadsheets all day and they make $75,000 a year and they go home and they watch television shows about guys who build motorcycles and make a million dollars a year. And there are guys out there, you know, who want to go into those um, sorts of jobs and occupations. But if you want to go to college and then go to law school and be a lawyer, your career path is sort of spelled out. You know what to do. Um, if you have other interests, we don't really have well-defined, well-understood paths for people to get on to lead to a, you know, happier, more stable and, and prosperous life. And so I think that'll be a lot of what we're talking about is how to um, deal with some of those problems in a way that's not, well, how do we get everyone to go to Harvard? Yeah. And I, Mike Rowe, I think makes a good point a couple, about a year ago when he, when he said, why, why should the, the person who has $30,000 in, in loans be forgiven? And the guy who has a $30,000 truck that he's built his business, why shouldn't he get a break yeah, for that $30,000 loan? I've written this column <laughs> 10 times. And this is exactly what I'm talking about, that the people who have real influence are people who are college graduates. And so the policymaking class tends to respond to its own people or to people who are like them. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people who have debts out there that we could probably forgive or pay off in some way and radically improve their lives, much more so than paying off uh, you know, debts of someone who went to law school and has got $25,000 in loans left over that don't amount to more than one and a half percent of his income every year in debt service. And in Houston, you'll be speaking with uh, Veronique de Rouget on the free enterprise and freedom. Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Yeah, well, they, they kind of go together, as it turns yeah. out. You know, one of the things about being conservative that's kind of hard sometimes is that we don't change our ideas about things, right? You know, we've got the same things uh, over and over and over. And sometimes, well, it's actually, it's a real political problem. You know, I and mean, part of the sort of populism and Trumpism and nationalism is just you have a generation of people who are bored talking about property rights and school choice and tax reform and um, the need to rationalize our regulatory regime and those sorts of things. They want sort of more exciting, more personal uh, kind of politics. But at times we have to remind people that um, political liberty and genuine social freedom is really built on property rights. I think that's one of the things that's it's the unsexy, unromantic thing about life that people really have to understand that the first and foremost duty of governments is to protect property. And once that is done, all sorts of liberty can be built on top of that. 
Um, but without property rights, you don't have a free press because it takes capital to publish a newspaper. I know I went broke doing it. Uh, it's a terrible <laughs> business to be in. Um, you know, it takes capital to run a political campaign, to have any sort of meaningful free speech, any sort of meaningful you know, political activism um, requires this stuff as a basis. And so there, you know, there are some things that a society can do that can really um, get you 90 percent of the way there. You know, you need property rights, a free press, competitive election. Uh, decent courts that will uh, effectively uh, make decisions based on what the law actually says, a minimum level of you know, corruption in the public sphere. And if you have those things, you can really get a whole lot done without a whole lot else. You know, we've seen countries that don't have a ton in the way of natural resources that have really built um, very prosperous and uh, happy societies based on those kind of basic things. So I think we'll be talking about some of that and some ways to um, apply those in a, in, a, in a world that doesn't look very much like it did in 1980 or 1990. Your, your answer prompted a, a, a thought that I wanted to ask you about with regard to the moment that we've had with COVID and all that happening and uh, the, this call for more school choice uh, mm -hmm. based on that. Um, I, I find it a little bit saddening that that the conservative position seems to be, well, what we're going to do is we're going to implement our thoughts of what school choice should be and not real school choice. Yeah. <laughs> so let's give, share some thoughts, thoughts on that. Yeah. One of the things I always try to get people to understand is that um, there's a big difference between government provision of a service and government funding of a service. I think we would probably be better off if we had very generous government funding of K through 12 education without having local governments actually operating schools. Um, I think there's probably for the foreseeable future going to be a role for, for government run public schools. They're not going to disappear tomorrow. But what we really want is a situation in which we can maximize the returns and the capital we put behind this stuff. And uh, I think really the way to do that is, again, people get bored with this stuff because we've been talking about vouchers since 1981 or whatever. But a fully voucherized system, I think, would solve a lot of those problems where you've got real school choice. You've got room for a you know, kind of proliferating uh, variety of institutions that serve different kinds of students and different kinds of families and different kinds of communities with different goals. And um, you know, one of the things that you know I, I get out of Hayek and Mises that I think is always worth revisiting is that people really do have different goals. People really do want different things in life, and sometimes it's really hard for us to understand that. You know, I've I've, I've often written this about Barack Obama um, and that sort of you know kind of hectoring managerial progressivism, because you know he's a guy whose life turned out real well. And so he, it's natural for someone like that to think, well, if people just made the same decisions I did, then their lives would turn out real well too. So how can we get more people to be more like me? And, um, and it never occurs to, to these folks that maybe there are people who don't actually wanna be like them, who have you know, other, other uh, priorities and other things they'd like to get done in life. And, um, and that we need those people because we can't all be uh, Journalists. I mean, someone has got to, you know, grow the food and build the buildings and do the actual work in the world, and then so that we can talk about it. Yeah. Well, and w one thing that you'll come up in the opposition in in Texas is with voucher system is but football, Kevin. But but football. Yeah. So I went to uh, Lubbock High School, which is the losingest five A team in Texas history. So you won't hear too many complaints about that from uh, from us. 
we were the very, literally the worst 5A football team there had ever been in Texas. Wow. We had a oh. heck of a chess team. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm in Allen, where, as you know, our, our football stadium seats, it's 18,000 people, and we have 750 kids in the band. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago, I went to uh, Midland versus Midland Lee, I guess, and, um, and they have that huge stadium out there that's, you know, bigger than most, most college stadiums, and it's, uh, it's quite a show. But, um, yeah, maybe football shouldn't be our controlling priority. <laughs> I wouldn't think so either. Well, Kevin, this is great. Uh, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home in the last segment, but I want to thank you again for appearing on the show. I uh, want to remind folks that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Our show notes and previews to upcoming shows are out there, but right now a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh My Fraud. Fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with National Review's roving correspondent, Kevin Williamson, who wrote The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. And Kevin, on that, I just wanted to ask you, everybody's talking about stakeholder theory. Yeah, yeah. And I have such a problem with this because, you know, there's conflicts within those stakeholders. Employees want higher wages. Consumers want lower prices. And the price system 
is mm. what resolves that conflict. But now we have these like unelected, unaccountable emperors sitting in the C-suites of these companies thinking that, oh, well, we can just be everything to everybody. And they're not accountable to the shareholders like they should be. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that um, this is going to sound worse than I mean it. But I think there's sort of an evolutionary point here, which is, um, you know, if you look at the evolution of parasites, they always you know, sort of figure out um, pressure points in uh, organisms or in groups of organisms that are difficult to avoid. And um, that's where they, they, they find out you know, the place they need to be to ensure contact. That's why there's so many sexually transmitted diseases, uh, but not diseases that are transmitted by, you know, hard work or good taste. And um, I think that, you know, these, um, that progressivism is in that sense parasitic, that it finds places in institutions at which it can sort of infest and uh, operate maximum power. And for the longest time, you know, the kind of 1960s, 1970s, you know, flower power, long march to the institutions, what they thought it was going to be was education. That, you know, we control the schools, we can indoctrinate the kids the way we want to. And then that's how we win the culture. And it turns out that it doesn't actually really work very well uh, because most people come out of high school not really caring what their sophomore history teacher thought about anything. And um, it's really hard to um, indoctrinate people. It's not as, not as easy as they make it sound. But standing at the nexus of uh, credit and finance is a very powerful place to be. And um, to the extent that we're seeing, you know, this ESG stuff written into um, all sorts of uh, rules and internal practices for financial institutions, you know, essentially what we're doing is raising the cost of capital for people whose values don't conform to what the people who control the system want to. So it's, you know, it's a, essentially a, a credit tax on nonconformism. And I think that is, is a bad place to be. Um, it has the potential to be really abusive. You know, um, I'm, I'm really thankful for what has been uh, mobilized um, against Russia in the uh, aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine. But we should also be paying attention to this because these sort of wep weapons are weapons, right? You can point a gun at a nice person, you can point a gun at a bad person. And sanctions and other sorts of economic uh, means of coercion are, are weapons quite like that. And we've already seen that people are quite willing to go to extraordinary steps to try to punish people who have different views from theirs on things like transsexualism. Um, on these sort of, you know, hot button cultural disagreements and, uh, you know, trying to punish states like Georgia for having, you know, laws that people don't like or Florida or things like that. You know, good luck punishing Florida uh, when the whole country seems to be uh, moving there as fast as it can. <laughs> so um, I, I do worry about this stuff some. Now, I, I tend to think that, um, um, you know, money lending is an old business. Anything that's old enough to have a prohibition against it in the Old Testament is probably going to be around forever. And uh, it's a very competitive business. And so I tend to think that competition within finance, within the credit markets, will um, take some of the edge off of the ambitions that people have to want to use access to credit and um, 
access to financial services to uh, control people and to punish their political enemies. But we've seen some pretty, you know, successful examples of this. Um, you know, the campaign against the NRA, I think, is is, is certainly one of those. And, um, you know, the big oil companies that are getting, you know, sued from time to time or investigated for securities fraud for essentially saying things that Democrats don't like about climate change. They're used to getting sued. They get sued all the time. Uh, they've got guys on staff for doing this stuff, but it still costs money. It still costs the shareholders something. And um, it still diverts capital away from useful causes into the pockets of um, you know, essentially parasitic lawyers and political activists. And the deeper you dr drill into the stuff, just the, the grosser it gets. You know, I've I've written a lot about the Chevron um, Ecuador thing. Um, so something I've been covering just for years and years. And, um, you know, some of these activists, uh, it turns out, um, actually had a percentage interest in the settlement. Uh, they were essentially being, you know, compensated that way. Um, you know, Karen Hinton, who's a former... Uh, Cuomo aide and press secretary mm. and sort of Democratic bigwig in New York had a percentage interest in the case and, you know, was writing about it in Huffington Post and things like that and uh, not disclosing the fact. So, you know, there are billions and billions of dollars in play in this stuff, in addition to people's, you know, cultural preferences and moral sensibilities and political ambitions. And once you put, you know, billions of dollars on the table and uh, sort of cultural sensitivities and point everything in the same direction, then you've got some real um, opportunities for abuse there, I think. It would be simpler if we would just treat property rights like what they are, that, you know, businesses belong to the people who own them and that we have, you know, laws and regulations. We expect people to follow them, but um, we don't create these, you know, pseudo property rights in the business and its activities uh, for social groups, employers, local communities, those sorts of things. And the nice thing about publicly traded corporations is if you want to have a say in how it's run, there's a way to do that. Right. <laughs> we have proportional representation. You get all the votes you can buy. And I think that's, you know, a pretty good way to run things. Our, um, you know, the, the sort of ecosystem of, of rights and institutions that, that really makes the American economy possible is, is a really, really very delicate thing. And there are things that we don't really think about all that much sometimes, like, you know, bankruptcy law um, that makes it okay to try something new and crazy and to fail and it doesn't have to, you know, ruin your life. That really enriches our society in ways people don't understand um, because we throw a lot of different approaches at a lot of, you know, social and, and material problems and the cost of failure isn't very high. And so you can fail your way to discovery much more efficiently and quickly in a system like that than you can in, say, the way 19th century capitalism looked, or even you know, to some extent in a much more regulated environment like you see in Western Europe and the European Union, although they've got some, some, some good things going on there as well. So it's one of those things that, you know, it's the old conservative uh, sensibility here, I guess, is that um, it's worked really well. So maybe you don't mess with it too much. And if there, if there are groups of people that we feel are disadvantaged or whose interests are not being taken into account, there, there are ways to deal with that. You know, we, we subsidize all sorts of things. We give money for all sorts of purposes. We create grants and programs of assistance and things like that for all kinds of things. Um, in some ways, I think that would be just the easiest thing to do. If you think that workers in industry X aren't making enough money, probably the best thing to do is just write them a check. 
instead of trying to launder your social ambitions and your political ideas through corporate management and essentially create a welfare program that shows up on the payroll side instead of in the expenditure side from the government budget. Awesome. Well, Kevin, we're out of time, unfortunately, but real quick, you got a new book coming out? Um, nothing I'm ready to talk about yet, but okay. on the horizon. Well, hopefully when it's out, uh, you'll come back on. We'd love to have you. So thank you so much again for doing this. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, sort of continuing on a theme that Kevin brought up, uh, we have Michael Tanner. He's going to talk about his book, The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. Excellent. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.